Katie, bias can pop up everywhere, even on our own show. In fact, your contributions are infected with a subtle but pervasive anti-Jesse bias that has caused me great harm and invalidation. Facts don't care about your feelings, Jesse. And out there in the broader media landscape, bias is an even bigger concern. Increasingly, we're all trapped in our own filter bubbles, in media ecosystems where our prior beliefs are never challenged. This leads us to deranged, hyperpartisan ideas like Jesse is bad or gamers are human. Luckily, Ground News gives you the ability to compare how sources with different biases are covering a story, so you can easily see if it's being spun to fit a political narrative. Their app also alerts you to any news blind spots that you may have, stories that were only covered by one side of the political spectrum. As a listener of Blocked and Reported, you're likely more interested in forming an intelligent opinion rather than consuming regurgitated partisan hackery. Learn more and try Ground News for yourself by downloading the free Ground News app or try it on the web at check.ground.news blocked. Again, that's check.ground.news blocked. Katie, how's it going? Jesse, pretty good. I have some exciting news. Ooh. So uh, last night, we're recording this on, on Friday. Last night, I was on Siraj uh, Hashmi's podcast. You know you know Siraj? Yeah. He's, um, uh, <laughs> yes. I forget what he does. <laughs> What's his story? <laughs> um, what he does is, well, he has a podcast called Habibi Bros, but what he primarily does is he metaphorically takes people's phones away when they've when they've done bad tweets oh yeah, yeah he calls it the list yes that guy um so he's very funny i was on his podcast last night and he converted me to islam oh tell me more so he gave me we didn't talk about any of the theology so i don't really know anything on the background about this muhammad guy or, or what i believe now but he gave me the official what he says is the official muslim pledge and i took it and I think I'm I'm Muslim now. If if you say there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet three times, you're you're Muslim. Muslim, right? Oh, so I could. Well, I I said it in Arabic. You have to say it in Arabic. Oh, do you remember how to say it? Oh God, no, of course not. It's only my first day. <laughs> hey, lay off! It's my first day. <laughs> anyway, so um, I I figured that you would like that. I mean, now we are a we are a Jewish slash Muslim podcast. Maybe the only one. I was going to say this really a makes us more diverse. B, um, of course, our segment last week that would have ended the Israeli Palestinian conflict for good got bumped, and it's probably going to get bumped again this week. We have a packed schedule. This gives me more confidence that we'll be able to do that. Yeah, now I have some lived experience to be really able to talk about these things. Uh, I think um, how to phrase this. I feel like uh, realizing something new about your identity and then referencing your lived experience 30 seconds later <laughs> is very in right now. I'm doing it right, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, inshallah, this will be a, a fruitful faith for you. Inshallah. Katie exactly. Al-Herzog. I do love where you know I am going to miss wearing a mask, so I, I figure the 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 veil will uh, will come in handy when nobody is masking anymore. You should go full like hardcore fundamentalist. That's just my recommendation. I'm a little concerned about how the lesbian thing is going to go over um, at my new. What do we call what do we call the churches? Muslim churches? Synagogue. Syn- <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 Jesse. It's temple. It's temple. Um, temple yes, temple. we'll see how it goes over at the mosque. But um, I plan on on joining a, a very orthodox community. I'm very excited about it. Katie, what is the name of this now even more intersectionally oriented podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. Katie, when I think about all the times I've said that we have an exciting show, man, often that's not the case. But this week, this week, are you kidding me? It's exciting. It is exciting. <laughs> That's not the level of energy I was looking for. We are going to talk about the question of whether Nicole Hannah-Jones has been canceled, just completely canceled, career over, because she got a five-year guaranteed teaching gig instead of a permanent guaranteed teaching gig. And then what else are we talking about? Because we there are a couple of stories we're keeping an eye on. One is, um, uh, oh, we're going to talk about an AP staffer who – may have also been canceled, except actually canceled in the sense of being fired for being too pro-Palestinian, or that's the claim at least. And then what was the last thing? What am I forgetting? Something about Kamala Harris. Oh, yes. More more race stuff. But I guess we should start with the uh, the big story in media world is Nicole Hannah-Jones, and you sort of took the lead on this one, right? 
Indeed. So Nicole Hannah-Jones, as our listeners are probably aware, is the award-winning reporter for the New York Times Magazine. Also known by you as Hannah Nicole Jones in a couple of our earlier episodes. (laughs) Look, I for some reason find it very difficult (laughs) to remember the order of her names. I'm going to try my best to get it right this time. I probably won't be able to do it, but I'm going to try my best. I wish you the best. So this week, NC Policy Watch, which is a uh, an outlet out of North Carolina, um, reported that Nicole Hannah-Jones, that's it, right, <laughs> Nicole it. Hannah-Jones, uh, was denied tenure from a teaching position at UNC uh, at their journalism school. So here's the headline. After conservative criticism, UNC backs down from offering acclaimed journalist tenured position. This came out on May 19th. This started, this sparked a, an entire media cycle. And the story, according to this, these two reporters on this, on this case, uh, Joe Killian and Kyle Ingram, is that Nicole Hannah Jones was, uh, offered a five year, as you mentioned, a five year contract from UNC, from UNC's journalism school. Um, she was up for tenure. And then after conservative backlash, the North Carolina Board of Trustees, which is the governing body that, or one of the governing bodies that controls the UNC system. So not just the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, but the entire UNC system, which is 17 public schools, um, that conservative backlash led them to deny her tenure appointment. Is, is that the story as you sort of understood it? Yeah, yeah. That that basically all else being equal, she would have had tenure as a result of getting this position because it comes with tenure. But conservatives were mad that she, you know, has has painted U.S. history in such a dark light. Right. And she got glowing reviews from the faculty committee looking at reviewing her application, um, high praise on her teaching, as well as, of course, her, her scholarship. She's won a Pulitzer as well as the MacArthur Genius Award and is most known for the 1619 Project, which we have talked about on previous podcasts. So this is this is the narrative that has spread throughout the media. There's something fishy about this, though, because the AP reported today that this decision. So UNC announced Nicole Hannah-Jones would be joining the university in April. Almost immediately after that, there was some conservative backlash. So this NC Policy uh, policy Watch story refers to several pieces that were published by the James Martin Center. The James Martin Center is a conservative, a, a conservative uh, institution in North Carolina. It was formerly known as the Art Pope Center. Art Pope is sort of North Carolina's own Koch brother. He's a very rich guy who has lots of control over state politics. So, um, so the James Martin Center they they published two pieces after this was after this was announced that um, that Hannah Nicole Jones was given this appointment. <laughs> you just did it again. Oh, I did. Take Jesus a shot. Christ. Everyone, take a shot. Yeah. Okay. So they published two pieces. Uh, the first of which was called. School of School of Journalism or Ministry of Propaganda. Um, this piece by Jay Shallon is essentially critical of her appointment. Uh, surprise, surprise. I'll read just a, a couple lines from that. UNC's hiring Hannah Jones signals a degradation of journalistic standards from one in which ethics and truth are prized to one in which a writer's work is judged according to whether or not it serves a preferred political agenda. For she has been exposed as somebody whose work is less journalism than an outpouring of emotions, the crown jewel of her career, leading uh, leading a rewriting of the nation's history called the 1619 Project, has been attacked and ridiculed by historians of all stripes and persuasions as unfactual and biased. Okay, so they published that piece. They also published another piece entitled UNC 1619 Project Hire, a case study of failed university governance. This one is by a woman named Shannon Watkins. I'll read you a couple lines from that. The fact that such individuals could pass through the vetting process unimpeded demonstrates that the hiring practices in UNC schools are inadequate and threaten to jeopardize the institution's credibility. The Board of Governors should act swiftly and amend all relevant policies so that trustees are required to review every proposed hire. Trustees shouldn't have the option to delegate their authority on matters of such central importance to the university. Otherwise, the public should expect to see more Hannah Jones hires in the future. So you have these two pieces um, published by the James Martin Center. According to NC Policy Watch, these pieces were in part that led to her 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 not getting tenure. Here's where things get a little weird. According to an AP report that came out today, the decision not to offer her tenure came in January. These pieces came out in May. Oh, they made the decision in January. Yes. 
So the decision was made by essentially one guy, a guy on the board of trustees named Charles Duckett. And we'll get into in a little while. We're gonna we're gonna get into the board of trustees and what that is and what the board of governors is. There's a lot of sort of confusion about what these two what these two organizations are. But essentially, these are two appointed commissions that oversee the UNC system. So there's one guy on the board of trustees. His name is Charles Duckett, and he was the one the one person who chose to postpone the review of Nicole Hannah Jones' tenure submission, according to this reporting by the AP. So this so according to this report. Her tenure submission was never brought before the full board for review, and instead, uh, she accepted a five-year appointment to the faculty. So this idea that there was conservative media backlash that led to Nicole Hannah-Jones not getting this tenure appointment, the timing just doesn't work out here, right? This happened in January. The announcement was made in April. The conservative backlash happened after that in May. Um, that is not to say that I think the story is totally wrong. The UNC Board of Trustees and the UNC Board of Governors, which oversees the Board of Trustees, are highly political bodies. They're appointed by the legislature. The legislature for the past 10 years has been dominated by Republicans. So these are political appointments. And they are definitely conservative. And there have been, there's been a lot of tension within, uh, or within the UNC system where you have these universities that are basically liberal institutions. You know, these are public schools. It's in North Carolina, but these are universities. Universities tend to be liberal that are governed by a highly conservative board. And so you have this tension and this isn't new. This has been going back for years. Um, you have this tension with this conservative board governing these liberal institutions. Yeah. Well, so I feel like it doesn't – so it was conservative backlash that caused it, just not conservative public media backlash. It was like internal, right? Well, we don't know. I mean, that's the thing. Yes, I assume that this was that this came because of, of Nicole Hannah-Jones' reputation among the right. Yes, I think that's probably – that's probably true. It was a political decision. Um, she had, as I mentioned, she had high marks from the faculty that she was, she's incredibly popular on campus. This was a very, very, uh, unusual decision for the board of trustees to, to step into this, this tenure process for sure. But the idea that this came because of some sort of massive conservative public backlash, the timing just doesn't work out. Yeah. I mean, I guess, so I have to confess that I am a big, uh, I'm a big academic freedom guy. I've written a couple of pieces, one for New York Mag, one for Reason, about like these stories that of just like people really want a student, want a professor, one one the attack came from the left, the other the attack came from the right, really potentially getting fucked over by just like cowardly politicized um administrations. This one, it like when I went um I'm officially off Twitter. I do poke my head in to see what's going on. People acted like the difference between Nicole Hannah Jones getting just a five-year gig on top of her already incredibly – all her other work versus with or without tenure was like a major line in the sand for academic freedom. And I do think there are a lot of those lines in the sand. I just have to admit like I've had trouble getting that worked up about this. I, I, I don't know. It, it, seems, it just seems obvious to me that conservatives hate her. And that that's part of what's going on, but that there's a million versions of this going on on a million campuses every day. Why should this be like the case where we really have to like take a stand and have a strong opinion? Well, I mean, I think it's important to take a stand and have a strong opinion about this because uh, acting as though her being penalized for what she's what she's written, which is does appear to be what has happened. Um, you know, these people on the board of trustees are saying no, this is because she lacks the academic qualifications. I don't actually believe that this 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 chair position that she got brings in professional journalists to to teach at universities. This is not like a full time job; it's a prestige position. Um, but prior prior holders of this of this of this position have gotten tenure. Um, so I, I highly doubt. You know, you don't need to have to have a fucking PhD to teach in a journalism school. She's yeah. a working journalist. She's a successful one. I do think that this is penalizing her based on her speech. And if we are not going to be hypocrites, we should care about this when it happens to people we agree with or people we don't agree with yeah okay i think that's fair and 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 i'm convinced it sounds like you're convinced too that this is just it's straightforward political like there there is uh there have been errors in her work and i think one big one in the 1619 story but i mean who do, who hasn't had errors of the course of their career especially one as prolific as her 
Right. If they're if making errors in journalism makes you uh, unqualified for a professorship, there probably shouldn't be any journalism schools at all. It's incredibly common to make errors in your reporting. Her error was maybe more, maybe not. Actually, let's get specific. Can can you go into a little bit of the background here? Yeah. Well, the background is basically in the introductory essay for the 1619 Project. She wrote that uh, a major factor causing the revolution was people wanting to maintain the institution of slavery, which. I do not get the sense that is a thing most historians of the revolutionary period take seriously. Um, there were a lot of other like outright, arguably false things in her piece. It's I think people don't like the fact that she's very she's straightforward about this and outspoken about. It. She's sort of a, an activist journalist. She sees it as her job to change how we see the country and and to get people to understand the in her mind, huge role racism has had in forming the country and continuing to sort of operate in it. Um, I also I don't think she has necessarily done a great job representing herself, especially on Twitter. She she seems to treat even good faith critique as coming from a morally bankrupt place. But again, her and every other fucking journalist and academic on the planet, right? Right. And she's a big get for UNC. She's an alum of UNC. She's famous. She probably would not actually be doing that much teaching because she's still keeping her job at the New York Times. Um, so yeah, I mean, this does, you know, her, her appointment in the first place was probably political, but her denier of tenure also probably political. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess that's what it comes down to is like to pretend there's any – I guess like maybe some corners of academia like – well, no. I was going to say I bet in like chemistry you could safely say academia is not political. But I'm sure it's political. I'm sure certain theories are favored and trendy and faddish and like any human institution, uh, mucky human stuff is, is going to operate. I don't know. It, every, is anyone not political in one way or another? We're political. I mean, at this point, at this point, no. There is some some backstory here, though. Okay, so the Board of Governors, this conservative governing body, has in recent years, um, they've been accused of of interfering within the workings of various various institutions within the UNC system. So here's a here's a particularly egregious example. Uh, so at Western Carolina University, and this is I should say this is where my parents spent most of their careers. So I'm very familiar with uh, with ins this institution. Um, there was a, a search for a new chancellor. During this search, a board member, a board of governors board member named Tom Fetzer, who's a lobbyist in Wilmington, which is a town across the state, and he's a former mayor of Raleigh. He's a Republican, former chair of the North Carolina Republican Party. During this search, he stepped into the search process, and there was a candidate who he didn't like. And so what he did was he hired a friend of his, or I don't know if he paid for this, but he got a friend of his who works as a like a, basically a, a private investigator to look into one of these candidates. We don't know who the candidate was. We don't know what the what the what the private investigator found, um, but he did some sort of background check, and this guy or maybe woman who was uh, who was one of these finalists for this positions was eliminated by this eliminated from this from this 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 job search based on what this guy Tom Fetzer found or what his private investigator found, right? So without knowing any details. Right. So the details of this are really muddy because this is all wrapped up in HR and personnel stuff that's all sealed. But so it turns out Fetzer apparently wanted this position. He wanted to be appointed interim head at Western Carolina University. Oh, so we hired someone to like kneecap the competition? Right. That's so corrupt. That's delightfully corrupt. Right. The board itself or the board of governors also, the last two presidents of the of the UNC system have been pushed out by, by the board over politics. So most recently, this was a woman named Margaret Spellings. Margaret Spellings had worked in the Bush administration. She was uh she was she replaced a guy who um who was appointed to head the system by Democrats. He was pushed out. Spellings is appointed. At first, the Republicans loved her, and Democrats didn't like her. There was lots of uh, lots of pushback over her hiring in the first place. But over time, she had the position for a few years. Over time, progressives started to like her. Um, she had some conflict with the Board of Governors over Silent Sam, who uh, Silent Sam was a statue at UNC at UNC Chapel Hill, a Confederate a Confederate statue that uh, that a lot of people 
as you can imagine, were trying to get removed. She had all this conflict with the Board of Governors. The Board of Governors pushed her out. So they pushed out the last two heads of the system. They also pushed out the, uh, the chancellor of the, the last, not current, but the last chancellor of the UNC, of, of UNC Chapel Hill as well. And I talked to a political scientist at Western Carolina University named Chris Cooper. And he said that while the board of trustees does have this statutory authority to step in over tenure decisions, he can never recall a decision like this happening before. Um, this is generally pro forma. You know, once someone has the support of the department, usually that everything just gets signed off on. And that didn't happen. Um, so as, you know, as Chris pointed out as well, this North Carolina has a, has a, has a different system than, than a lot of other states. Like in some states, uh, the board of governors or whatever governing body of the, the higher education system is elected. This is all appointed by the legislature. The governor has no, has no say in the matter. And because the legislature is dominated by conservatives right now, it has been dominated by Democrats, uh, in the past. These appointments are necessarily just, you know, it's just political appointments. And then these people are tasked with, with maintaining this or running this, this massive university system. And some of them, you know, don't even have experience in higher education and shit like that. It doesn't seem like a good system. It's not a good system. I mean, UNC, the UNC system, they have very good schools. Like as a, I went to public schools in North Carolina. It's like as one far of the as, best public school systems right, in the country, right? Right, but it is. But you, but you do have this tension where you know this this conservative governing board overseeing overseeing this mostly liberal and uh, and for the most part pretty good system, um, and it's not working. Why don't the two of us come in and try to undercut whatever offer they made Nicole Hannah Jones? <laughs> thousand dollars less a year we will split our duties and the salary and we don't need tenure i think or you know we could offer her a tenure position as the third host of block and reported <laughs> do you think she'd take it do yeah definitely do do we have te- do both of us technically have tenure on this podcast i no, just me you don't have tenure you just have a five-year appointment yeah pe- most people don't know this but we are actually we both serve at the pleasure and discretion of the tennessee state legislature it's a long story <laughs> but they can they can can us at any point yeah i think one other thing to note about this is this sort of thing, not Nicole Hannah Jones being denied tenure, but state legislatures getting involved in uh, the higher education system is happening all over the country. This month, Idaho passed a passed a bill banning the teaching of critical race theory in schools, including in universities. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is a whole other thing that I, I've – there's been a spate of these bills. We talked about them a little – there's obviously a subset of like diversity trainings that are really crazy and, and get like just very weird. We've talked a lot about Robin D'Angelo. Overall, I, I don't want like the government having much of a heavy hand on like what sorts of diversity trainings universities try to do. I think if you have a problem with these trainings, a much better bet is just like call attention to them and, and drag it out into the public and make it a a public fight over what they should be. We should we should just argue about this stuff in public. I just think conservatives are often pretty full of shit when it comes to things like free speech and academic freedom. They're very quick to clamp down a lot of the time. Right. And in Idaho, this isn't even about uh, banning, you know, diversity, like Robin D'Angelo style diversity trainings. This is about banning the teaching of critical race theory, which seems obviously unconstitutional. You have the state coming in and telling people what they're allowed to teach at not just in public schools, but in higher ed. Even if you disagree with critical race theory, which is a massive body of work, it's massive. It's massive. And it, and yes, it has been, there's this, it, the concept of it has crept way out from the original Kimberly Crenshaw sort of legal framework. Well, I think the original is like Derek Bell, which is a yeah. much broader range of arguments. I mean, it's so many thinkers under one roof and so many different arguments and a lot, like some of them are perfectly reasonable and important. It's just, it's become one of those catchphrases that's like, been inflated by culture war bullshit to the point where it hardly means anything anymore. I would, I would I'm so opposed to anything like that. We're going to ban this entire field of legal research. It's, it's political grandstanding. It really is. And it's going to have, as always, it's going to have a massive backlash. These things, I think people can sort of um, sometimes ignore that when something like this happens, this, this is, this is conservative backlash to the teaching of critical race theory in schools. It's conservative backlash to what we're seeing in the culture right now. A lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, Donald Trump's executive order banning critical race theory. The, the origin of this, this is pushing back against a thing that is happening, which is lots of social justice theory being taught in schools. 
so it's a backlash to a real thing. But then, of course, there's going to be a backlash to the backlash where. Yeah, there's like this thing where each side accuses the other of um, trying to make things a culture war issue or like trying to exacerbate tensions. That's sort of silly, because obviously if you do like. Uh, if you bring in like Ibram X. Kendi and Robin D'Angelo, they are presenting a pretty radical view of this stuff and they're clearly trying to provoke. That's a huge part of what they do. So you can't then complain when conservatives respond to that provocation by being like, no, we don't like this stuff. I, I increasingly just think there's like a subset of people who profit so much just from like from these fights and that these fights are just going to go on forever. And and yeah. I say that as someone who's like a pretty staunch critic of like the worst contemporary diversity training programs. Right. Um, can I read you one of my favorite tweets in response to the Nicole Hannah Jones thing? P- please do. So right wing group. So this also references uh, Emily Wilder, who we're going to be talking about momentarily, but this is a tweet from Joanne Reed. So right wing groups are now openly targeting journalists whose past views or present journalism are tweets they don't like and getting them fired or their university tenure taken away. But cancel culture is bad. Am I right? Question mark. Joy Reed. <laughs> this tweet, as I said on Twitter, makes my brain brain bleed. Yes, cancel culture is bad. Yes, this is an example of it. But she is somehow she somehow seems to think that this thing that we've been complaining about for years, cancel culture, that we have been warning people about and have been saying this will come for you too, that this isn't an example of it. It's it, very confusing. Yeah, it's it's so fucking dumb. I mean, cancel culture is not a great term because it has a million different definitions. But um, the politicization of everything, trying to disrupt people's careers over dis it's all stupid and this idea that only one side or the other does it or should fear it i i i gotta say also like as soon as this story broke everyone is like demanding that every harper signatory chime in on it um and it's just like you know i i think it's bad i think it's clearly politicized but it's just it's we are talking about the difference between a very very famous person I've had like I admit I've had trouble getting too upset about this. I do think it's politicized, but we know we know higher ed is politicized. It's horribly politicized in every way. Right. And she accepted the appointment, so She's cool with it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying she's cool with it. She's probably not cool with it. I if I were her, I'd be pissed that other, you know, prior Well, cool enough with it to be like, yeah, I'll do this for five years. Right. And, and also I think they can can't they just reappoint her for another five years indefinitely without uh, the right wingers being involved. Yeah, they could. They could also give her tenure after five years. Oh, they without without uh, that veto point existing from the board. Uh, it might. It, I, I think the the board would still, in theory, have have the statutory authority to step in, but they could at least try to appoint her, uh, give her tenure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's she's not canceled. I do. I think this is cancel culture. Yes, but she's not canceled. Yeah. I mean, it's cancel culture, but it's like, yeah, this is. Uh, endemic in academia. I get so many emails from people who just who, especially when you're pre-tenure, which I guess she technically is, but that's because she's also not an academic. Journalism schools are weird. Um, a lot of academics right now are running around feeling like they can't they can't express themselves at all on any hot button issue because it will really potentially screw with their career. And we've seen some real world examples of that. And I am worried about the chilling effect of that stuff. Uh, this is bad. It is bad. I'm just I'm not particularly. Do, are we worried that uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the, the message here that anything about her career is going to have a chilling effect on the way we talk about race? Does anyone look at Nicole Hannah-Jones and say, wow, uh, we really shouldn't talk about race. I'm scared to write. I mean, I don't know. I'm being a jerker. I mean, yeah, I, I'm sure that some people look at this and say this is what happens when you you know, speak truth to power, when you speak about race. Uh, this is what happens when a black woman in particular does something that threatens the powers that be. Um I think it's a little bit more complex than that, uh, as everything is. I mean, th- yeah, I've I have seen that line, and the idea that the powers that be are thre- well, the Republican Party is threatened, conservatives are threatened. The powers that be are hiring Nicole Hannah Jones to come give talks to their institutions for fifty thousand dollars or whatever. She is the powers that be at the moment, which is good. I, I'd rather have her be the powers that be than than far right white senator. I, but it's just. The power dynamic discussion gets very confusing because it's very clear that this ideology um, has been adopted by, like, the the biggest companies and institutions in America. 
Yes, uh, definitely. And this is probably one of those cases where that I think ultimately this will be good for her. Um, you know, and that's often true with these cancellation stories. If someone's a public figure, uh, she'll probably benefit. She might get another offer somewhere else. Um, you know, it certainly rises or makes her platform bigger because she's a victim now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, it's it's bad. It shouldn't be politicized. It, it, they obviously would not hold a well, a conservative scholar. <laughs> trying to imagine like an uh, analogous scenario is hard because a conservative scholar never would have gotten a position like this. But hypothetically, for sure, they would obviously not hold a conservative scholar to the same uh, standards. Yeah, there's a lot of hypocrisy going around. I mean, from my perspective, if you thought that the firing of Antonio Garcia Martinez from Apple, which we talked about in our last Patreon episode, uh, was egregiously unfair because he was fired for something that he wrote, um, then you should also be concerned about this. This is Nicole Hannah-Jones being penalized for something that she wrote. It's bad. Well, yeah. I'm trying to think if those are ana- – yeah, I – yeah. It's just like, I mean, he was – it's not analogous because he was fired and she was denied tenure and given a five-year appointment. Yeah. Uh, he suffered a lot more. Um, but it is, you know, it is penalizing people for things that they've written. Yeah. Yeah. Which we, um, we should try not to do. Right. I mean, the, I mean, the board of governors is saying it wasn't that this was about her qualifications, but that just doesn't make any sense because she's fully qualified to, to, to hold this chair. Oh, position. Totally, yeah. She doesn't have a PhD, but you don't need to have a PhD to, to, to hold this position. She's one of Pulitzer. She's one of MacArthur. I might not think that those were, she's like one of the most celebrated, Journalists in right. the country, yeah. Whatever you think right. about and it. And we might think that, yeah, we might think that these weren't necessarily deserved or that, <laughs> or that a lot of the criticism of her work is is fair. Um, but still, she's certainly qualified to, to hold this position. Yeah. Uh, anything else on this or do you want to uh, to move on? Um, last thing, I want to read a tweet by a friend of mine, Kirk Ross. This is a guy in, in Carborough, a longtime reporter who's covered the, covered the education system in North Carolina politics for a long time. Kirk wrote, just to clarify, the University of North Carolina system and its individual campuses have been under one party rule for almost the, for most of the last decade. North Carolina Constitution gives the legislature control over the system, how it's set up and how it's run. This is on them. When I first started covering UNC legislative interactions in the late 90s, the f- election of the Board of Governors was, in the words of one s- Senate leader, the dirtiest thing in the building. Little has changed. What has changed is the consolidation of power. North Carolina General Assembly leadership effectively controls them all, Board of Governors and Board of trustees. So there's not only a lack of balance, they've also narrowed the pool. Hacks, bad actors are are inevitable. I think he's right. Yeah, it just seems like a very, I mean, state governments in general tend to be just cesspools of corruption. Then you mix them with higher ed. It's just, it gets very ugly. Right. I do think that a lot of the people who are enraged about this, uh, you know, would not have a problem with with a democratic legislature, a legislative board, um, you know, Running the running the school system, so that's political too. All right, so we have another uh, sort of almost polar opposite journalism story. This is someone at the very beginning of her career getting in much more serious trouble than being denied tenure. Uh, this is a young woman named Emily Wilder. Okay, so Emily Wilder began uh, working for the Associated Press on May third as a news uh, associate. So like an entry-level staff job at the AP, very big deal. She was very proud of it. She has now been fired. And the timeline is a little fuzzy, but basically conservatives got very mad that she did a lot of – she's Jewish, but she did a lot of pro-Palestinian activism in college. Um, And she was sort of blown up by a bunch of conservatives. She received violent threats, a lot of harassment. They were just mad that someone was working at the AP from this activist background – uh, eventually, this is from an SFGate story, an Associated Press spokesperson confirmed to SFGate that Wilder, quote, was dismissed for violations of AP social media policy during her time at AP, end quote. And the um, tweet in question, and this was after she started working there, she said – Objectivity feels fickle when the basic terms we use to report news implicitly stake a claim. Using Israel but never Palestine or war but not siege and occupation are political choices. Yet media make those exact choices all the time without being flagged as biased. That appears to be like the one thing she's tweeted 
that anyone can point to as a reason for her to have been fired. The AP apparently told her, like, we don't care about your college activism. Everyone has opinions in college. Um, now, the, the company's social media policy does state, this is a quote, AP employees must refrain from declaring their views on contentious public issues in any public forum and must not take part in organized action in support of causes or movements. Um, I'm basically not in favor of any young person losing a job in journalism unless they've done something seriously wrong. I find myself a little bit torn on this because, like, if you start a new job and you immediately violate a very clearly stated policy, you just sort of need to not do that. And it it sort of seems these days like everyone has to be their own opinion brand online. Everyone, no one can stop tweeting. We had a version of this with Lauren Wolf, who lost a gig at the Times over her tweets. Um, what do you think is the right place to come down on this? Well, I think it's a matter of proportion. Yes, correct. She violated the social media policy. The appropriate response to that, I think, would be a friendly talking to uh, and asking her to delete the tweets and to not do it again. The proportionate response is not firing someone from their job for this. And the tweet itself, I don't find the tweet egregiously bad. I think the tweet is fine. She's making a valid point. She doesn't cover, you know, she doesn't cover Israel. This is not her beat. Um, if this were her beat, I would think it would be much more problematic. But uh, yeah, I don't think that somebody should be fired for something like this. I don't, it it makes, this is sort of similar to the time scene where like it makes the AP look bad and look like they were caving to this like onrush of conservative pressure. I mean, she left herself vulnerable by violating the rule, but like a Twitter rule violation should not get you fired from a staff job. I don't think so. I, I mean, I, I'm sure that there are some circumstances under which we would say like, yes, that was that that crosses a line if you're tweeting, I don't know, pornography or something like that, kitty porn. Um, but this wasn't that. You know, so uh, San Francisco, SF Gate did an interview with her. She's a recent graduate of, of Stanford University. And I can't remember who pointed this out on Twitter, but uh, it wasn't me. Um, but so here's the headline of that piece. An interview with Emily Wilder, a recent Stanford grad fired from AP job over criticisms of Israel, and it's sympathetic towards her. Um, do you remember the SF gate piece by Drew Magary? Magary? How do you pronounce his name? McGarry. McGarry. Um, uh, that was quite the butchering. Uh, this is from August 2020. SF gate, Drew McGarry. We are canceling the right people. <laughs> and this has always been this has always been the point cancellation isn't isn't okay when it happens to just people that you think deserve it these conversations should of course include the broader point here which is that if you cheer on the cancellation of your political enemies you look like a fucking hypocrite if you you know if you have a problem with cancel culture when it comes with your political allies yeah i mean a lot of the people who are mad about this are are fine with people getting fired for like equivalent conservative stuff they they don't claim to have like pro free speech principles they just want their friends to be protected and fuck everyone else um I, yeah, I, I now feel bad that I – I don't think I'm actually in the middle on this. I don't want this woman fired at all. I, I do think – like fucking suspend her for a week. There is something about the need to compulsively tweet your opinions. And you and I can do that. It's it's part of our job. But like when I was at New York Mag, a few times I got into like Twitter fights or whatever and one of my editors was like, dude, fucking stop. When I – in the run-up to my Atlantic piece about detransitioners – they really wanted me to not tweet about trans stuff while we were finishing up the piece, while we we're closing the piece. I could have just like kept doing it and been like, fuck you, but they would have maybe canceled the piece. I, I, at a certain point, like if you want a job in one of these institutions, so you want to write for them, it is not a huge sacrifice to just follow their policies. And then if you want to agitate to change those policies from within, that's fine. But like, it was the same thing as Lauren Wolf, where she had a job where she wasn't supposed to opine online and she just couldn't stop. And same as with here, it was just like, you know, the same lefty stuff everyone else is tweeting. Trump bad, Palestine good, uh, Israeli – it's just – it's not adding something. Like why – I feel like we're stuck where we feel like we have to express our opinions. We just can't stop. Yeah, totally. I mean my basic rule about when to tweet and not to tweet, 
I tweet if I feel like I have something to add, and I oftentimes don't have something to add. I'm not going to tweet about the Israel-Palestine conflict. What? No, don't say that. There's just like, there are some things that I, you know, I don't think I tweeted anything about George Floyd because I don't have anything to add about this. But there's this other pressure where if you're not involving yourself in the conversation, you look like you look like an objector somehow. Like that's political as well. Yeah, yeah, not chiming in. I mean, because assholes were literally like, well, why aren't you chiming in on this case? It's like, right. Yeah, like that. Like every time there's some sort of cancellation, and 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 people say, "Where are the Harper signatories?" Well, maybe <laughs> I don't have anything to fucking say about this particular case, and I don't find the need to just put my two cents in for the sake of it, so that people know that I have an opinion. Just once, I want to be like, uh, "Sorry, I was in a horrible car crash. I'm lying on the operating table. They're about to take out my spleen, but let me first tweet my opinions on this." Jesse, what's more important, your spleen or making sure that everybody knows what you think about Nicole <laughs> Hannah-Jones being fired that, that, or losing tenure? I will say, like, I know there are some bad anti-cancel culture people. Some of the most deranged people on Twitter are the anti-anti-cancel culture people where, like, 30 seconds after an event happens, it's like, huh, well, Andrew Sullivan hasn't chimed in on this yet. It's like, just get a life. One, one of those people was a signatory, ironically, of the Harper's letter G- here. I don't know why he was invited to sign the letter. I don't know why he signed the letter, but he does this almost every fucking time there's there's some sort of blow up. He 30 seconds have passed. Where is Andrew Sullivan? <laughs> I'm going to fucking mount like a bulletin board above my desk with like glowy lights where you can like check off who's responded to what and how quickly yeah. they did because nothing could be more important than that. There should just be an app for that. There should be an app for that. Or <laughs> like a website like has Andrew Sullivan chimed in on the latest cancellation.com and it just says yes or no. Yeah, that's a great idea. Blotter reported listeners, someone build has Andrew Sullivan chimed in on the latest cancellation.com and we'll uh, throw you some publicity. The URL has a uh, real, real catchy. Yeah, it just rolls off the tongue. Um, Oh, the culture, Katie, is exhausting right now. Jesse, you have stopped. You have got to stop talking about exhaustion. You're starting to sound like the NBC disinformation <laughs> reporters. Y'all. Y'all. Oh, God. Um, I'm also, I mean, I have been being off Twitter, except to occasionally check in for fodder for Blockchain Report, has been good. It just. You, I, you have to stop this. You have stop to stop what? it. Stop you what? need to get back on Twitter. No. Why yes, would you no. ask me to do that? You need to because for this job, you need to also because you haven't drummed up any drama lately, which is directly bad for me. You need to get back on there. I look, Luckily, like I know that you're going to do this for the month of May. I don't think – like you might say like, oh – this is going to be my real life now. I'm not going to, I'm just not going to participate. You can say that you're going to get sucked back in. So I'm glad. I'm, I'm strongly leaning toward early in June being like, that was good. I'm going to do that for another month. No, dude. When you spend, when you spend like, first of all, I haven't been as off as I'd like to be. I do need to promote my stuff, but when you spend, um, five days off and then you jump back on and you see like, what people are saying about like fucking Liz Bird. It's just like, how was I ever a part of it? It makes you feel superior. And I love feeling superior to others. Jesse, this is not your brand. Your brand is the guy <laughs> who gets involved in dumb internet bullshit. Don't do this to me. Katie, I just went on Sam Harris. I'm an intellectual now. The, the, the blocked and reported board of governors is going to have a talk with you. <laughs> um, Sam Harris fucking – I had no intention of talking about Israel-Palestine. Oh, God. And then he was basically like midway through our the thing. He's like, almost – almost uh, not quite this, but I was like, so what else is in the news? Huh? Well, uh, Hamas, Israel, what do you think? And I had to just like fucking mumble out an answer. It was not good. I hope that you spent the majority of the show talking about this podcast and not your stupid book. It did come up once or twice. We did not talk as – I should have pushed to talk about the book more, but like – we talked about everything. He's a good uh, interview guy. We should get you yeah. on there too. Yeah, he is. I, that's, I think that's a great idea. Sam Harris, uh, I demand you put Katie Herzog on your thing. Um, okay. What are we talking about next? Uh, I just There was an article in Politico that drove me a little crazy. I wrote about it for my paid newsletter, but I just want to talk to you about it for a little because like all the shit we've talked about, about like racial identitarianism, sort of – it, it captures all of it. It's in Politico. The headline is how Kamala Harris became a victim of the barrier she broke. Kamala. How Kamala Harris became a victim of the barrier <laughs> she broke. 
Hannah, Hannah Nicole Jones would have been furious. Yeah. Well, maybe by the end of her second term as president, you'll have figured out how to pronounce her name. Okay, but Katie, while you were talking, I literally pulled up the pronunciation guide. Hold on. I'm gonna, it says Kamala Harris. Which is right. You said Kamala. Oh, Kamala. Okay. Um, here's a couple snippets from this story. Harris carried many firsts with her to the vice presidency. The daughter of an Indian mother and a black Jamaican father, she's the first woman, black person, Asian-American, Indian-American, and biracial woman to serve as vice president. Those firsts have come with their unique set of pressures, primarily for her to embrace her history-making role. And after nearly four months in office, Harris faces criticism that she hasn't struck the right balance, that she's focused more often on being the United States' first black vice president than the first Asian-American one. It sounds like they're accusing her of acting Acting too black. <laughs> She's th- is this blackface? Is this kind of blackface? Kamala, Kamala, stop with all the the hip hippity hoppity. All right, here's another one. She does wear Converse. <laughs> Those are comfortable shoes. Okay, here's um the one that got to me more. Politicians and activists of Asian descent have cheered Harris's ascent, but they want her to speak out more about her Indian heritage, embracing it as she does her black roots, and advocate for policy issues important to Asian Americans, including legal immigration, COVID-19 disparities, and discrimination and hate crimes. They say the need has never been more pronounced as the discrimination Asians have long faced continues to grow. Marked tragically by the marked shootings of six women of Asian descent at three Atlanta-area spas. First of all, they literally erased the non-Asians who were murdered right. in those same attacks. They're just not mentioned at all. Uh, they say discrimination against Asians has become more pronounced. I Are don't... they talking about Harvard? <laughs> That's a good line. Uh, they mentioned COVID-19 disparities. I went on the CDC website and Asian people are basically white when it comes to COVID. They're less affected. <laughs> it's like they just that? make – they just you just say a racial group and then say there's disp- – I don't get it. But – what got me the most about this was that this idea that Harris has some connection to the uh, victim, the Asian victims of the massage parlor shootings. And it's just like when you actually try to play that out in your mind, like Kamala Harris, who came from uh, a Brahmin family in India, I actually searched for the distance from the, the province where she grew up to Seoul, South Korea, because I'm an asshole. It's like more than 3,000 miles. And she grew up in t- totally <laughs> practically next door. It's how is this not basically racism to say that she has something in common with Koreans? What am I missing? Well, not just Koreans. It's also Koreans of a totally different social class. These are women were Yeah, they were like I think one of the victims was like owned a massage parlor too. And then they were like middle class or working class people who give massages. It's 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 actually like kind of crazy to put her in the same bucket as these women from totally different backgrounds. I mean I, I mentioned this in my newsletter. Harris had a pretty privileged upbringing. Like her dad was in training as an economist. Her mom was in training as a cancer researcher when they met. Um, the the identitarianism is so weird. To to suggest this person comes from like an actually oppressed background. I do think she was probably among the first generation of people who look like her who could become vice president. And that's great. Her actual upbringing was solidly like – Middle class, and she was just, you know, she has the background you would expect of someone who resides in the White House, an economist father and a a cancer researcher mother. But when you just treat her as like a black woman or an Asian woman and suggest she has something in common with working class massage parlor employees, that's just like pretty offensive and reductive. Right. It's also it maps all of this sort of black and white, the current narrative about about race onto like a continent where – well, that is a huge, but also where race is very different. And you see the same th- the same thing happening with the discussion over Israel and Palestine, where people are trying to map our sort of black and white. The Jews count as white and the Arabs count as blacks. Um, you know, it's just we can't look at, at all of these things through the through the framing of our own Americanized view of race. Yeah, yeah. The I mean, the whole we've tried not to talk about the Israel stuff, but but. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, and I'm literally ma- raising money for Palestinian refugees. I'm not. I that I I'm not happy with how Israel conducts itself. But trying to put this in the box of like colonialism or white supremacy or BIPOCs, it, it's insane, and it just shows how like the left, 
the progressive imagination has become so crimped and, and limited that that's the only uh, vocabulary we have to discuss anything. And it makes us sound very, very dumb. It's like team sports. I mean, it's just, you know, you look at Twitter and you decide, are you going to be like, <laughs> and of course, like some people have, you know, more nuanced views on this. Some people actually know what's going on. I don't, which is why I have declined to say anything about it because I don't understand the history. I don't understand. I don't even understand what I don't understand about this issue. But you're also so you're so anti-Semitic that you're too biased. Well, I am Muslim. (laughs) I had I had no feelings about it until yesterday. And now I have lots of them. Um, Yeah, it just becomes this. It's tribal. It just becomes team sports, you know. One side good, the other side bad. It's like Mets and Yankees. Yeah. And it's like, like the history of Israel's founding is much more complicated than like uh, a country fucking invading the Congo for its reason. It's just, it just does not map neatly onto the colonialism thing. Colonialism was obviously real and horrible, but uh, how many times can I say it's complicated or it's nuanced? I'm just, I'm, I'm a very annoying person to listen to. It's weird. We have any listeners. I'm horrible. You really are. <laughs> That is not the, complicated. That is just – there's no nuance there. It's just truth. On the issue of Jesse Single, you're either right or you're wrong. <laughs> you can be – you are either anti-Jesse Single, you're anti-anti-Jesse Single. Uh, I guess that was all I wanted to say. I just found – it was such an interesting article because of how like sort of baldly but unwittingly it promoted this idea – of a some sort of mystical like oriental connection between completely different ethnic groups from very far apart i it's just so weird that this has become the standard way to talk about this right i mean we've seen so many examples of progressive position progressives taking positions that on their face appear to be very racist oftentimes in the names of of, of anti-racism i just uh while we were recording this i just got a text message from my wife as people know she works at a hospital and she was uh just invited to join her her workplace's um white affinity group uh and she is going to join so she can tell us a little bit about what it's like maybe but she she sent me a text message saying it feels very weird to be requesting uh to join a white group (laughs) yeah very strange times yeah this is just we keep saying this this weird sort of progressive segregation and progressive racism that is supposed to be anti-racist but just when you try to look at objectively it's like no this is actually fucking racist yeah um anything else on this uh i think that's it all right. As always, you can reach us at blockedreportedpodcast at gmail dot com. Are we gonna Are we gonna attempt to do the uh, advice episode at some point? Should we solicit stuff for that? Did we talk about that forever ago? We said we were gonna do it. This could have been eight months ago. Should we Should we do that like right now? I'm so nervous. Let's do it now. All right. At some point, we're gonna maybe. Um, Katie, a long time ago, had this idea to answer people's like advice questions. Then Dan Savage stole it from her. Uh, <laughs> I guess that was and, a nice question. Yeah, uh, uh, dear Prudence also stole it from us. Dear Prudence, uh, Ann Landers stole dear it from Abby. us before we were born. Yeah. Um, I we might depending on the quality of the submissions we get, we might devote one episode to just like answering people's personal questions. So. If you have a personal question and you're comfortable with your voice being heard on the show, record us an MB3 and send it to us at blockedandreportedpodcast at gmail.com. No promises that this is going to work. We're going to see what submissions we get. And definitely no promises that the advice will be good. Absolutely not. It will. We will we're going to ruin some lives. Um, in your recording, make it clear whether you want your first name used or, or how you want us to refer to you, just so we know, because that's obviously important. And you're welcome to record something and have us not use your name. But obviously, you need to be comfortable with your voice going out to, uh, what is it, eight, 800 million people a week? Uh, 8 billion, I think. 8 billion. Uh, okay, so there's that. Uh, please continue buying multiple copies of my book, The Quick Fix. Check out my interview with Sam Harris. Um Oh, barpod.org for all your merch needs. Reddit.com slash r slash blocked and reported for that. Uh, if you haven't sent us an email, but you'd be interested in a potential live show in New York, let us know. We've gotten some great emails from people. Seems to be a lot of enthusiasm. We're hoping to make it happen. Katie, anything else? Yes, we have a subscriber-only program. This is hosted at patreon.com slash blocked and reported. For just $5 a month, you can get three extra episodes of this podcast, plus a bunch of other good shit. Patrons are the reason that we can do this. So if you like the show and you want to support us, please join us at patreon.com slash blocked and reported. 
Yes, please do. And, and thank you to all our patrons. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single. And remember, in the school of life, there is no tenure. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, I bear witness that there is no God but God. Allah, Akbar, Inshallah. <laughs> oh my God. That's going to be what gets us in trouble.